Baruch Ata Adonai Noten HaTorah. Amen. Mazel Hello and welcome to Contact High. Today's episode of Shabbat Replay is Rabbi Lizzie's drosh from our Saturday morning Shabbat service on January 7th. Her sermon addresses the themes of suffering and redemption in Parashat Vayehi, as well as in the greatest masterpiece in modern cinema. Take it away, Rabbi. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> I have been telling everybody to run, don't walk, to see what I think is the best movie ever made, which happens to be in theaters right now. Are you ready? Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. It's about a cat named Puss, who wears boots, who goes on a journey to avoid his mortality, something he has never confronted before because he's a cat. And after all, cats have nine lives, but he's on his last life. So the parallels to the human condition are obvious. On the way, he meets a mangy, funny-looking, snaggletoothed, relentlessly positive and optimistic stray dog. Doesn't have a name. Along their journey together, the dog is asked how he can be so optimistic when he has clearly had such a hard life. He's wearing this worn-looking, raggedy little woven shirt. The dog describes wearing this little thing, how he once had a family and that family used to play hide and seek with him. Like they'd leave him outside in the cold, but then he'd eventually find his way back in or they'd stick him in a dumpster and close it and run away. But he'd eventually find them in the end. Eventually, the dog says, they thought of a great hiding place for him. They stuck him in a sock with a big stone and then they tied it up and they threw it in the river and ran away. Puss, listening, has a look of awareness that this little dog does not appear to have, which is the realization that this is no game of hide-and-seek. But with a smile on his face, the dog says, I never found my family again, but they were so thoughtful because they gave me a rock to be my friend and I got a sweater out of it. At which point you realize with horror that this little raggedy shirt he's been wearing is the sock that he was thrown into the river inside of. And he's been casually wearing it ever since, like a badge of his irrepressible resilience. There's not a hint of anger on his face as he recalls what should have been the most traumatic event of his life. Somehow he is able to reframe the events of his life through a lens of not just survival, but as having had a higher purpose. It's said that pain in life is mandatory, but suffering is optional. As we bring the book of Genesis to a close, the Torah is concerned with how we can live in the world and experience pain, disappointment, loss, sometimes by the people we trust and love the most, and yet come out not broken and bitter, but stronger, kinder, and wiser than we were before. This week, we get the story of how the many descendants of Abraham, the Israelite, Avram Ha'ivri, end up in the land of Egypt with all of Jacob's sons, 
and their families and everything they own now at the mercy of Joseph, the youngest brother of all of them. And you may remember that Joseph has had a hard life and it's kind of their fault. Not kind of, completely their fault, right? As a child, Joseph had been Jacob's favorite son, which is hugely problematic in terms of a parenting style, by the way, to discuss another time. Joseph had also been an interpreter of dreams. He had been arrogant, so much so that his brothers ganged up on him one day in the field and almost killed him. But then eventually they just sold him to a band of traders who brought him down to Egypt, sold him as a servant, where he serves for a while until he gets thrown into an Egyptian prison on false charges. Again, this guy has really been through it. And the whole way, we don't really get his perspective until in prison, he starts to interpret the dreams of the other prisoners. And he takes the very thing that was dysfunctional in one context, the thing that got him in trouble, that was you know antisocial in one context, his dream interpretation and the arrogance that went along with it. And he figures out how not to run away from it and leave it in the past because it got him in trouble then, but how to make it work in a new context. And so when people say to him, how do you do that? You know, how do you interpret these dreams? He'll say, oh, it's, it's not me. It's God. God's just working through me. And somehow he redeems the dream interpretation and also his arrogance. And it's this interpretation, the reframing, his skills, his talents, this orientation that's not just about dreams, but about life. God is driving the bus. I might not understand it. I might not like it, but I'll trust the process. I will trust that this is God's plan for me. This is God working through me. Why? Well, because it's happening. And Joseph has this deeply held faith that allows him, Joseph, sorry, has this deeply held faith that allows him to survive prison until the moment that his dream interpretation and the confidence that it is not him doing the work, but God, it lands him an audience with Pharaoh who has had some crazy dreams, which this foreign foreigner Israelite prisoner can interpret. And not only can he interpret, he has ideas for agricultural and economic policy and how to handle the famine that Pharaoh's dreams predict, right? Precisely the thing that got him in trouble with his brothers as a kid is the thing that redeems him decades later because he has learned how to control and channel it. And he becomes an economic advisor to Pharaoh, which means that when a hungry, ragged group of Israelite brothers travel down from the land of Canaan, Israel, to Egypt to find food, their brother Joseph receives them. And of course, he has they have no idea who this government official is. After all, he's speaking Egyptian and wearing Egyptian dress and makeup, but he knows who they are. And, and the truth is, he doesn't just forgive them like, oh, it's all good, guys. This was God's plan all along. But he does have a framework for forgiveness, for seeing if they, like he, has grown through the experience of living through pain and suffering. And it turns out they have. Just as the years and the tragic events of his life have brought Joseph humility and wisdom, 
it seems that the years have taught his brothers compassion and taking responsibility for one another. So he reveals his identity. And as he does, he says to them, you may have intended harm, but God intended it for good so that I could be in this position to help our family through this famine. And he shares food with them and they bring Jacob, their father, down to Egypt and he reunites with his son after all of this time. There is a lot of beautiful, heartfelt weeping that happens in this story, which is quite unusual for the Torah, but it underscores how much emotion these brothers were carrying, just waiting to pour out, not in anger and resentment, but in deep, deep love. And that includes Joseph. But when Jacob dies, precisely the piece we read earlier as we read Torah, Joseph's brothers get scared. They get scared that Joseph's sunny, optimistic faith in God and the whole divine plan and everything was maybe an act. You know, like now that there's no Jacob in the picture, perhaps Joseph's going to take revenge. Surely they imagine the only reasonable response to being hurt so deeply by them is to want revenge, to want to hurt back. They throw themselves at his feet and say, we'll be your slaves, just forgive us. But Joseph, like the little dog, shows not a shred of anger or desire for revenge. He appears almost mystified by the brother's paranoia. He says, don't worry. You know, he says again, you may have had evil plans for me back then. I get it. But God used you in order to accomplish what is now the case, to keep alive many, many people. Altira'u, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And thus, the Torah says, he comforted them and spoke to their hearts. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard has said that life is lived forwards, but only understood looking backwards. After what Joseph has been through, no one would blame him for focusing on the pain and trauma and cruel intentions of his brothers years ago. But it isn't what he does. Rather, he focuses on the kind of person and leader he wants to be now, not in spite of the past, but in light of the past. Meaning, after the cruelty visited on him, he knows better than to nurse and cultivate the anger. Because he knows what anger can do. Anger can make you feel righteous and right, but it doesn't solve problems. It won't make you happy. It doesn't make for a good life lived forward. And so he cultivates faith because he wants to be an agent for repair and healing. He does this as the one who was the victim, who got hurt. He cultivates faith because he wants to be an agent for repair and healing. And so at every moment, we have a choice about how we want to understand the events and the circumstances of our lives up until this very moment. We can be prisoners of the harm done to us and marinate in that darkness, nurse our anger and our hurt. No one would blame us. Or we can see the events of our lives, the good and the objectly, unequivocally awful as they are, and also as opportunities to grow and transform and create more light for us and for those around us. Now I realize I've used two fictional examples, a DreamWorks movie and the Torah, which 
um, while not fiction is not exactly history either. So allow me to make the point using a real story. Dr. Viktor Frankl was born in 1905 in Austria. So he was already a practicing psychoanalyst specializing in treating patients with suicidal tendencies when he was taken to the Theresienstadt concentration camp and then transported to Auschwitz. As a prisoner there, what Frankl discovered was that the Nazis could take away almost everything that made people human, their possessions, their clothes, their hair, their names, but they could not take away one thing, a person's will to live, their sense of purpose. And so Frankl devoted himself to giving people a reason to live a higher purpose. His fundamental discovery, for which he later became famous, was this. He wrote, We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This mental shift came to be known, especially in cognitive behavioral therapy, as reframing, just as a painting can look different when placed in a different frame, so can a life. The facts don't change, but the way that we perceive them does. And a lot of this is quoting from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs about how Frankel discovered that it didn't matter in that context what we expected from life, which is to say they had already been devastated by their lives. So what they expected from life was no longer the question. The question now was, what did life expect from us? And so by giving people a sense of the future calling to them, the, the child that was still alive in a country somewhere else, the book that this person needed to write because they were the only person who could write it, Frankel was able to help people discover their sense of purpose in life, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Right? The facts don't change, but the way that we perceive them can. And so Joseph, back to our story, wasn't just an interpreter of dreams. He was an interpreter of life. Rather than seeing the events of the past as a fixed, permanent negative, eternally awful in their impact on him forevermore, he reframed them as part of God's curriculum for him, part of the plan for his brothers, for him and all of Egypt. And his suffering, hard as it was to endure, was possible to endure because he believed it had a purpose. Now, <clears throat> perhaps you were thinking, look, sometimes pain is just pain. Sometimes suffering doesn't have to have a purpose. And it's almost perverse to assign meaning to some of the truly horrific things that people endure daily on this earth, or to suggest that war or torture or violence or genocide or rape is part of some design, excuse me, divine curriculum for self-improvement. And you would be right. You would be right. And for that reason, no one else can tell you the meaning of your suffering. In the story of Job's, Job, Job's not-so-great friends 
try to explain away his great misfortunes and it doesn't go well. They are not good friends. Don't try to do it for somebody else. Only each one of us living forward, looking backward, can put together the pieces of our story and tell a tale of redemption. Unless you think that this is something that people can do in the movies or heroes can do in the Torah, please remember that every hero, every survivor is just a person like you and me challenged with extraordinary circumstances that called up in them extraordinary power. And that is power that you have, that each one of us has and can use for the good to redeem our story. Now, New Year's often comes with a great sense of possibility and optimism. Like if we just start new habits, we can let go of the past and start fresh. But I want to ask us how instead might we honor the suffering and the challenges we've been through instead? How might we take the troubles that we have been handed as individuals, as a couple, as families, even as a country, and not ignore them or run away from them, but reframe them lovingly, draw wisdom from their experiences so that the pain of the past can be a teacher, can be a classroom in which we practice being the version of ourselves that God put us in this world to be. I wish you all a blessed, resilient, forward-looking 2023. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening. <laughs>